Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, welcome to All Things Tudor. We're here with a special educational episode with Dr. Elizabeth Norton. Elizabeth, thank you so very much for joining me this evening. We are going to talk about the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and the ceremonies that surround the monarchy. So, Elizabeth, I'll let you take it away. Okay. Um, Yeah, so obviously... um The Queen sadly passed away and she was obviously the head of state in Britain and um, as such is entitled to a state funeral and would of course have a state funeral. So which means that she doesn't have a private funeral. Her funeral is, you know, it's long and ceremonial. It's laid down by procedure. And we haven't had a monarch's funeral for 70 years. So everyone's a bit rusty. Nobody really knows what they're doing. The closest parallel is that of the Queen Mother, who died in 2002. Um, As a Queen Consort, her funeral was on a smaller scale, but roughly followed the same pattern as the Queen's. So the Queen died at Balmoral and um, obviously immediately is prepared for her coffin. She will be buried at Windsor. So over the course of sort of 10 days, it's basically getting her from Balmoral to Windsor. And it's convention that the monarch's funeral takes place 10 days after their death. So she, of course, died at Balmoral. And on the 11th of September, she was taken to Holyrood House in Edinburgh, which is the um, palace of the monarch in Scotland. Um, And of course, it has connotations. We we think about Mary, Queen of Scots, of course, um, when we think about Holyrood House. It's actually the smallest palace, um, the smallest royal palace in the British Isles um, for the Queen. So she was taken to Holyrood House. And because she died in Scotland, I mean, of course, there's been preparations made for the Queen's funeral um, for many, many years. Um, You know, people knew exactly what was going to happen. It was called Operation London Bridge. So when her death was announced, um, it was announced that London Bridge has fallen to Parliament, which was sort of the code that the Queen had unfortunately passed away. Because she died in Scotland, there's an added element, and that is Operation Unicorn for the Scottish Royal Beast. And that laid down the procedure for getting her through Scotland, if you like. So she's taken to Holyrood House, and she then lies in state there for a night, And then the next day, on the 12th of September, she was taken to St Giles Cathedral and the new king, Charles III, and members of the royal family walked in procession. Um, She was, her coffin was covered in the Royal Standard of Scotland um, because, of course, although she was Queen of Britain, the constituent kingdoms of Britain are England and also Scotland. And um, once in St Giles Cathedral, on top of what I thought was a really nice touch, actually, the crown of James V was placed on top of the coffin. This is the oldest crown in the 
royal collection in the crown jewels because the English crown jewels were melted down in the 17th century um, after the Civil War. So this crown dates from the reign of James V of Scots, who is, of course, Mary, Queen of Scots' father. Um, and it's a really significant crown. It is the crown with which Mary, Queen of Scots, was crowned. Obviously, it was sort of held over her because she was a baby. And it was also the crown with which James VI of Scots was crowned, again, held over him because he was an infant. I mean, the Scots, the Stuarts in Scotland um, quite often had um, infant monarchs, unfortunately. So the Queen lay in state in St Giles Cathedral and members of the public were permitted to come and view the coffin. At first as well, there was also the, a vigil of the princes held, which is where the Queen's four children stood at each corner of the coffin holding a solemn vigil. And this tradition dates back to the death of George V, the Queen's grandfather, back in 1936, when his four sons, um, Edward VIII, future George VI, um, and also the Duke of Gloucester and the Duke of Kent all stood at the corners of his coffin. It was resurrected again um, with the Queen Mother in 2002 when her four grandsons stood at four corners of the coffin. So this was um, Prince Charles, now King Charles, Prince Andrew, Prince Edward and Viscount Linley, now the Earl of Snowdon, who was the son of her daughter, Princess Margaret. So we had the vigil of the princes in St Giles. Actually, Princess Anne, um, is an unusual addition. She's the first woman to take part in the Vigil of the Princes. But I think, you know, it was a really important touch because she was so close to her mother. And she was, of course, with her mother when she died. The next day, the coffin was um, taken to a plane um, and it was flown to Buckingham Palace. So this is when the coffin left um, Scotland. And it left Scotland very ceremonially. You know, it went in a sort of solemn convoy. There was obviously music the national anthem was played as a plane took off so she was flown to london and then taken to buckingham palace and she spent the night at buckingham palace and then on september the 14th we had the procession taking the coffin to the palace of westminster to westminster hall um, and this was obviously um a really solemn procession again all of the Queen's children walked in it, as well as her grandsons, um, Prince William, the new Prince of Wales, Prince Harry, and also Peter Phillips, her eldest grandchild. So they all walked in the procession with some of the women from the royal family following behind in the car. Again, Princess Anne was in the procession. And they then, um, she was then taken to Westminster Hall. Westminster Hall, it has been very commonly used for royal lyings in. Um, it is a 12th century building. Um, it was begun by William Rufus, the son of William the Conqueror. Um, really important both as a medieval palace and then as the site of parliament. It's been used for many royal lines in. The first actually was the Prime Minister William Gladstone in the 19th century, but then after that it was used for Edward VII and George V. So all, basically all the monarchs will lie in state at Westminster Hall. And since the arrival of the Queen there, members of the public have been permitted to come and view the coffin again. And um, they really have been, and they've been queuing up. Um, the queue was almost immediately two miles long. It's expected to reach 10 miles long. Um, been, there have been warnings that it's going to take 30 hours to get through the queue. And they're all sort of shuffling along, moving all the time. Um, so it's quite something, really, for people to just spend a few moments with the Queen's coffin. And actually, um, reports of people who've been through and seen the coffin have been, you know, very emotional saying, you know, it's the most 
wonderful thing they've ever done. It is a very long queue, so I think you'd have to be very committed to do it. Um, but certainly, you know, it, it's not the sort of thing that happens every day. So the Queen is lying in state and she will lie in state until 6.30 a.m. on Monday, the 19th of September. And that is the day of her funeral. And the coffin will be taken in procession to Westminster Abbey and the ceremony will begin at 11 a.m. So it's going to be a very large funeral ceremony because, of course, although it's in celebration of the Queen's life, it's also a great state occasion. The Abbey holds about 2,200 people. So the heads of states from most nations of the world have been invited. Joe Biden will be there and also Dr. Jill Biden. No former U.S. presidents have been invited, but there simply isn't space for former heads of state. Um, but most other heads of state have been invited along with their spouse. After the ceremony in Westminster Abbey, the Queen will then be taken to St. George's Chapel in Windsor, which is around an hour away from Westminster Abbey. And there, there will be a private interment service where she will then be um, laid to rest with her husband, Prince Philip, who obviously died in 2021. And his coffin has been kept in a vault waiting to share the same grave as the Queen. So it is a very long funeral process um, and it's very ceremonial. Um, the troops are out, so wearing their bearskins, the Queen's guard, the heralds are there. Um, you know, for example, Garter King of Arms, you know, and the different heralds who, um, they basically, they come from the College of Arms and they control the heraldry. So, you know, they're making sure that all the banners and all the arms are correct. And it's all very, very ceremonial. And for example, back in the accession ceremony, because at the same time, of course, as well as the funeral going on, there's also the accession of the new king. So in the accession ceremony last Saturday, the king was proclaimed by the Privy Council, which is a body that's made up of sort of many sort of dignitaries, most of them um, former politicians and um, all the former living prime, all the living former prime ministers were there. And again, it's very ceremonial. So a lot of this ceremony has been laid down for centuries. Quite a bit of it comes actually from the funeral of Queen Victoria and later, because of course, royal traditions change over time. But it is intended to be a spectacle. It's intended to be a way of sort of seeing off a monarch who's reigned for 70 years. So that is a royal funeral. Well, thank you for that. I do have a couple of questions. Do any of the ceremonial procedures and protocol stem from the Tudor era? There isn't a direct route from the Tudors to now. Um, you know, so a lot, some of the elements are similar, for example, lying in state, um, you know, Tudor monarchs would lie in state, generally in the chapel of the palace in which they died, they would have the banners, um, there would be vigils taken. So that element is quite similar. Um, most of the protocol for a royal funeral does come from sort of the Victorian age and later. Um, it's Queen Victoria who really had a, the sort of first big grand state funeral for a monarch in modern times. But there's certainly a kind of a legacy, you know, I mean, we always think of that um, drawing of Queen Elizabeth I's funeral, you know, with the black clad mourners and the colourful banners displaying her arms. And so elements of that certainly have passed down over the centuries, um, particularly displaying the banners. And of course, everyone is wearing black in the procession. And I think the main thing is that um, royal funerals have always been about display. And, you know, it's not just about the individual who's being buried. It's also sort of the might of the dynasty and of their reign and of their successor. Thank you for that. You mentioned the College of Arms. And from what I understand, that was standardized by Richard III and revived by Mary I. Is that correct? 
Yep. So the College of Arms is really, really ancient. And it basically keeps a record of everyone's heraldic devices. Um, actually, um, in the 16th and 17th centuries, there was real concern that people who weren't entitled to coats of arms were um, just taking them for themselves. And they actually sent out heraldic visitations. So they sent heralds out into the counties to interview people and to check their family trees to make sure they were entitled to the heraldry they were claiming. So it's really, really ancient. It's quite archaic. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit like the livery companies in London now, which, you know, have, were once really important as sort of, you know, um, controlling trade, but are now more ceremonial in their sort of impact. So, you know, the heralds are basically brought out for royal funerals, but they are also in charge of creating heraldry. So, you know, for example, um, a prime minister will receive a coat of arms and, you know, and then the College of Arms will assist them in creating that. And I understand today or yesterday possibly was the first time the heralds of England, Northern Ireland and Wales walked in the procession with the heralds of Scotland. I wasn't actually aware of that. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't seen that. Sorry. <laughs> well. Um, it may well be the case. With my husband being Scottish, yeah, I, I just noticed that because I, I believe Scotland has their own heralds and the rest of the United Kingdom has theirs. It does, yeah. Yes. So England and Scotland are still very separate. Um, you know, obviously they, they were united under one monarch in 1603 and both incorporated into the Kingdom of Great Britain in 1707. But in, England and Wales um, share the same laws, um, obviously the same parliament. Um, Scotland has always had its own distinct laws and also sort of offices of state, so including sort of its own um, heraldry, um, its own College of Arms. Obviously, it shares the British Parliament, but it has its own Parliament now as well. Um, so Scotland has always been more separate from England than, say, Wales has been, um, largely because Scotland was, wasn't conquered, and so it joined the Union voluntarily. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in all things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. I'm curious about the ceremony. There's so much we as Americans don't understand, and I appreciate you taking the time to point things out for us. And can you think of anything thing I've missed. Uh, you've been great. You've answered so many things I've been curious about. Well, thank you. Um, I've been doing it all week, so I'm kind of like, you know, fairly well versed in it. Um, I mean, I think the only thing really is that it's actually quite new to everyone, really, in that there hasn't been a funeral of this scale probably ever, really. I mean, certainly the previous monarch died in 1952. So you have to be really, really old to actually remember it. So I think a lot of people are really unfamiliar, you know, both 
you know, in Britain and the wider world with what's actually going on. I mean, I know because I've been, you know, I've been broadcasting from Buckingham Palace and you're sort of, you'll be sitting there and suddenly um, guards will start marching by or, some, you know, mounted troops will come by on horseback, you know, in their ceremonial uniforms and no one's actually quite sure what they're doing. <laughs> a lot of it's practicing for the funeral because it's going to be a really big spectacle. But it's, I mean, it's uncharted territory to a very large extent, I would say, for most British people as well. Well, that's true. And there is so much mystery surrounding it and where the traditions came from and why you do things. And we're just very curious over here because we have nothing like you have, of course. That's why we're a separate country. But it's very sad. And I can see why there would be so much ceremony around the passing of a monarch because it's having a new monarch gives people some kind of hope for the future. That's what I'm picking up more than anything from the ceremonies. Yeah, yeah. And it is very sad. And I think I think part of the issue is, is that, you know, the death of a monarch, you know, it's always kind of traditionally said, you know, the, the king is dead, long live the king. But it's right in that there isn't a gap. You know, King Charles became king as soon as his mother had died. So I think you don't have that grieving space kind of automatically with a monarch because you go from one monarch straight to the next monarch. So I think in to some extent, the big state funeral and the ceremony is a way of celebrating the monarch while the accession ceremonies are going on. You know, for example, all the flags were at half mast, of course, when the queen died. But on Saturday, they all went up to full mast because the accession ceremony for Prince for King Charles was held. So, you know, it's it's there's definitely is kind of a balance between sadness for the death and looking forward to the future. And I think the state funeral, in a way, kind of bridges that. It helps people grieve, doesn't it? It does. It does. I think, and um, sort of draws a line under the previous reign as well for. Um, people, I think, you know, and it is a difficult period. It's slightly confusing because, you know, of course, people knew that she was quite frail. But um, for most people, she's been a presence in their life, all their lives, really. Exactly. And most of us, like you said, we don't know another monarch. King Charles is the first male king of the UK we've known. So it's a a big transition Mm. for everyone. It's a huge transition. And I mean, there won't be another queen in our lifetimes, almost certainly. And something bad would have to happen. Very true. Thank you for your time and for educating us on the ceremony of monarchy. And as always, I enjoy working with you and look forward to you coming back on a happier occasion. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Thank you, Elizabeth. You're welcome. Have a good day. And thanks to our listeners. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.